Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of Outliers. I'm your host, Daniel Scrivener. On Outliers, every week we sit down with an incredible entrepreneur or investor to decode what they've mastered and find the insights, ideas, and mental models we can all put to work in our own lives. And today, I'm excited to share my conversation with Mark Trebek. He's a partner at the prolific venture capital firm, Graycroft. This conversation is special for a few reasons. Mark's entire focus is on investing in enterprise software as a service technology companies. And while many might think those sorts of businesses are unsexy, many of the most valuable companies in the world fit this mold from Salesforce to Zendesk to ServiceNow and Snowflake. So I set out to record the conversation I've always wanted to hear but could never find. In this interview, Mark shares so many of the lessons he's learned investing over the last 20 plus years. And he shares his thoughts on everything from the investments he's most excited about to what public companies he likes that play in the enterprise software space and what makes them so valuable and interesting. As always, visit outliers.fm to find the show notes and transcript for this episode, including links to everything that we discuss. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it with a friend, especially someone who thinks enterprise businesses are boring or unsexy. And now let's jump into my conversation with Mark Trebek. I'm super excited about today's episode. And with me is Mark Trebek from Graycroft. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Fired up to be here. I was looking forward to this conversation for a bunch of reasons, but I think one of the biggest ones is to help everyone have a more nuanced understanding of what it means to invest in early stage enterprise companies, because I think that's a space that's not talked about enough, or at least as much as kind of the consumer component. I think it'd be helpful to kind of backtrack and share a little bit of some of the formative experiences at the beginning of your career. So to kick things off, I wanted to talk about your time at Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and a little bit of kind of lessons learned experiences there that you carried forward. I grew up in Chicago and went to college at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. And as part of the of my degree there for those four years, I worked in a business program there. The highlight of that was a semester-long internship, and I did mine the second semester of my junior year and then stayed through the summer. So I started in January and worked through August of, it was 1992. I joined Goldman Sachs and worked there as I jokingly call it the analyst's analyst. I was lower than the analyst being kind of a pre-college degreed intern and in New York. And I worked at the time, it was in, they had an energy and telecommunications group because it was like the regulated industries. <laughs> that was before telecom had deregulated and the internet took off. It was totally fascinating. I had an amazing experience kind of getting an indoctrination into not only business, but kind of, you know, the many, many tasks that an analyst fulfills in an investment banking role. Can you talk a little bit about that and I think just share a little bit of color around kind of the culture you observed there? Anything that stood out to you, anything you kind of took away? So at the time in 92, Goldman was still a private company. It was pre- before they had gone public. And so it still had, and it was much smaller today, and it was pre a lot of the big mortgage scandals and all that stuff. So both Wall Street and Goldman particularly had this kind of aura about it that was different. And it was at the time, it was the only major player on Wall Street that was still private. And so the first thing I noticed were the senior partners were incredibly balanced. They didn't, they all looked great physically and they were, obviously they'd already gotten to a point where they had become successful, but they were, they had perspective and they could talk to people all the way down to guys like me as an intern, the assistants in the office, they were just incredibly great on the EQ scale. 
And then once you got down to like the vice principals were vice presidents all the way down through kind of the associates, they were just haggard and working like 140 hours a week. And they looked like they were like aging like four times faster than, but there was an aura of, it was a dignified grace of the partnership at that time. And it was really incredible to see how they built relationships and played that relationship card and invested, played the long game on everything. I never forgot that. It made me realize how important those relationships are to kind of the basis of all business relationships as well as, of course, your personal relationships. Talk a little bit about your experience at McKinsey, because I know you worked with some fascinating, super different companies while you were there. What was that like? So after college, I had a chance to go back to Goldman, but I decided to try something different. And my dad had been a longtime partner at Accenture. So I kind of had always had a fascination with consulting. And so I ended up taking a job at McKinsey in Chicago. This was a 93 fall. McKinsey was much smaller than it was today. Even back then, it was 20, 25, 27 years ago or whatever it is now. I got a chance to work in the Chicago office, which because where Chicago is located, it had a really broad set of clients and financial services clients, classic retail consumer clients that had industrial businesses. And so I ended up getting an interesting sample. I worked on Sears, like at the time, and Sears Credit was this particular... <laughs> product that I worked on, which was actually pretty fascinating. Then I spent time with a company called Continental Baking, which was the holding company that owned Wonder and Hostess. What was that consulting work? (laughs) The one thing we did find out is that Twinkies, amazingly, are not on shelves longer than seven days before they time out. So that was, I guess, an old wives' tale that was that was put to bed. Wonder Bread was only three days on the shelf before it was sent to the thrift store. So that was a fascinating business because it was right at the time when mass merchandise stores, Walmart and Costco and those guys were coming in. So there was a lot of pressure on the classic grocery store. And so was, that business was in a world of trouble given the caloric intake of those things too. And we were trying to figure out how we could kind of stem the losses on that. And then I spent another six months actually in electric utility, which despite how dreadful that sounds at first glance, hearing me even say that, actually turned out to be a totally fascinating project. I kind of got a really like broad sense of trying to be a business doctor across different patients in different industries, which I thought was pretty fascinating. I'm curious, from an experience like that, did you take away a sense that there's a lot more commonalities than there are differences among those businesses? Or was it more maybe the opposite point where it was an appreciation of just how unique and different all of these businesses' challenges were? Each of them had very different challenges. But actually, the one thing that was really fascinating to me, and I took this away from me, was I remember sitting down with one of the senior partners who'd recruited me after I'd been there about six months. And I said, how do you guys know how to solve these problems? Because they're so different in each of these industries and what they're facing. And he said, look, all you have to do is go around and ask everybody at that company in middle management, and they all know the problem. The only thing is that usually the senior managers of these bigger companies either are unwilling or unable to hear the feedback coming from the organization about what's wrong and what to do about it. And I thought that was really interesting because that was not an obvious question. And in our world today with startups, that's why they have such an ability to compete is because they're not inhibited with that massive infrastructure, that bureaucracy. And a lot of times, even like a preconceived notion of what's right, they're just willing to listen and change and, oh, that's what the customer wants. We'll just do that. And so that bureaucracy and that speed is kind of such a weapon for small businesses and becomes a real challenge for these big companies. And so most of the work ultimately was figuring out how to kind of cut through that telephone game between 
the middle level managers who tend to be close to the customers and getting that up to kind of the ivory tower and these big corporate headquarters for them to make decisions. And that's probably an oversimplification, but that was kind of what my takeaway of it was. Just before we move on, I feel like I, along with most people listening, have probably heard about what it's like to be an analyst at Goldman or what it's like to be a consultant at McKinsey. And people talk, clearly those jobs are attractive for a bunch of reasons because people continue to flock to them. So for anyone listening that is interested in either working on the consulting side for a company like McKinsey or working at an analyst as an analyst at Goldman Sachs, any advice for them, any words of wisdom? I think in the beginning of your career, it's just so important to just find people that you really respect and that you can learn a lot from. And those, both of those organizations, along with a number of the other, you know, companies just have spectacular talent in terms of people. And also those companies are built and they've invested massively into mentoring younger folks. Now you pay for it by working crazy hours and all that kind of stuff. But if you put into that, you really get out a lot because the people are amazing and the whole like educational mentoring chip programs and just how they onboard people and ramp you up. You just go through this incredible steep learning curve that winds up being incredibly valuable across whatever you decide to do. I was pretty certain after nine months that I was at McKinsey that I didn't want to be a consultant for the rest of my life just because I just wasn't, didn't resonate with me. I wanted to kind of get my hands dirtier and kind of get closer to solving the problems for the execution wise versus just strategizing about them. But it was, uh, incredible building blocks. And I think a big part of, you know, the rest of my career was certainly kind of set in motion or in those early days. So now to transition, you have those kind of formative early experiences. Walk us through then the kind of series of events, because I know you were a co-founder of a company and spent a number of years building a business. And then you've obviously spent almost 20 years now on the VC side. So just help give everyone a quick kind of overview of what that looks like. So when I was at the end of my, the last project I did at McKimsey was for an old regional bell operating company called Ameritech. And they were trying to figure out what this internet thing was going to be and how they were going to make money from it. This is before Netscape had gone public and it was the early days, right? And so I basically got to spend three months just learning about all this stuff and, oh, that's, you know, interesting. And then I ended up leaving from McKinsey and I got an opportunity to go into the venture business for the first time in the fall of 95. This was right as Netscape was about to go public. And the commercial internet, at least as we know it today, was just kind of getting off and running. And so I was lucky because I had had that transition through that lens at McKinsey. And again, that's one of those lucky breaks that you just wind up with. And I got really excited about the technology and the changing landscape of the world and just fell in love with it. But but for me, the part that I loved the most was where the growth and the disruption was incredibly alluring as kind of a market consultant, right, where my mindset was at the time, having left McKinsey. But the part that I absolutely fell in love with was watching the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur's journey and how crazy, I mean, you just realize that every one of these companies, when, you know, founders start companies, the odds are so stacked against any one of them ever working. And yet a number of them do. And it's just the raw determination. You know, it's listening to the customers that we talked about before. All that stuff somehow comes together. And if you get it timed up right with the market, you know, the magic can happen. And I just was so in awe of that kind of journey. And so I then went back to Stanford Business School. And when I left school, I started a software company with one of my classmates and an entrepreneur that I had backed in my first sentence venture fund because I knew for me I had to go get that experience because I was so in awe of watching people do it that I felt like that was something that I just it had to be a part of my journey. And so we started a software company 
right as we left Stanford that's called Jam Cracker. And actually one of my co-founders, Chandra, still runs it actually today. And it was an early SaaS infrastructure software app. The way I would describe it today with the benefit of 20 years now and a lot more nomenclature that exists in the world is it was basically an app store for SaaS applications. So an enterprise that wanted to avail themselves to a bunch of these different third-party cloud-based apps. Today, we call them back then, we call them application service providers. They could have a system where they could just select and turn these things up and then integrate them together quickly. Today, people do that using systems like Okta and Active Directory and Salesforce, their cloud and their marketplace and stuff like that. The markets kind of evolved in some interesting ways, but that was the idea and the journey was amazing. And I just, I still feel like if anyone ever wants to kind of go not only on a journey of building a company, but inward to yourself to find out what you love, what you don't love, what you are strong at, things that you're not so great at. There's no better way to figure that out than to throw yourself into founding a company. Yeah, there's no hiding. Oh, exactly right. <laughs> and emotionally, you just have to be on all the time because all your employees, your customers, everybody's looking at you constantly as the source of inspiration. And so you can never, it's so hard to kind of have a moment of reflection and honesty and be vulnerable, yet that's still so important to balance as well, because it's obviously, as a human, it's incredibly necessary and cathartic to do it. It's an incredibly challenging role. We've had a, quite a few investors that have then become entrepreneurs on the show. And something I'm always curious and interested when someone's kind of gone through that transition and has seen both sides of that coin is what you take away from that experience. Because there are clearly investors that have never been operators or entrepreneurs. Much more mainstream are investors that have been operators. And I would imagine you take away from that empathy. Is that all? What else did you take away from that experience? I've thought about this a lot and I've come up, and this is not a perfect analogy, so bear with me, but it's the best one I've been able to kind of think through and summarize. The way I describe it is imagine you're in high school gym class and you're with a thousand of your fellow classmates, right? And you, a thousand of you walk out through the locker room and into the pool and the gym coach says, today we're going to learn to swim. And none of the thousand of us know how to swim. And the coach says, okay, the task for the day is to dive into the deep end of the pool and swim all the way across the shallow end. 995 of the kids are like, no way, I'm not doing that. And they just turn around, and they go back into the locker room. There's five knuckleheads that stay out there who kind of look around and this would have included me thinking, I got this, I can make it across. Like, yeah, I don't know how to swim, but you know what? I like my chances, right? So five of them jump into the water, two immediately just sink to the bottom and drown, two kind of lash their arms around the lane line and just kind of hang there, and somehow like one makes it to the shallow end. The one making it to the shallow end, of course, is the Facebook or the Microsoft or whatever it is. But the reality is when you talk to founders, and if you sat down at a dinner with that group of five broadly distributed across amazing outcomes are the ones that sunk to the bottom of the pool and you sat at dinner including like with like a Bill Gates or something like that, none of them would ever talk about how much their companies were worth when they sold them or how much money they made. They would all talk about the journey that they went through, what they learned about themselves, how hard it was, how enriching certain aspects were, the moments of certain death that they faced, and somehow by some miracle they survived through. It's that, right? And so what I took away from the experience was you're in that elite founders club independent of whether the business worked amazing or not. And nobody can ever take that experience away from you and what you learn about yourself, the good and the bad. And so to me, that's the part. And I feel like now as an investor, like I get that, right? I understand what my partners as the founders of these companies go through. And I always try to remember to have empathy and compassion 
for that and be level-headed when things are tough and also, you know, to kind of keep them grounded when things are going really great because it can all change as we know very quickly. And I think of building off that, just what you said there is not typically, it's not a story that's ever told, obviously, in kind of mainstream media. And I think another aspect to that, that I've definitely witnessed that I think most people are just completely unaware of. And, you know, I had this experience when I was at at Square for five and a half years early on, kind of seeing it through a bunch of transitions is a lot of people look at a company like that and think like, oh, it's just this beautiful kind of upward, nice curve. And it is not that at all. You go through incredibly trying periods, even when you're quote unquote successful. And even when you've kind of unlocked this achievement, you're always kind of going through battles and maybe an example of that today is Facebook has an incredibly lucrative business. Is it facing a ton of different challenges all across the board? Absolutely. Any thoughts, observations on that aspect of it? So Alan Patrickoff, who was, you know, one of the co-founders of Graycroft and still is our chairman emeritus, he has a funny chart that he puts up at many of the events where, you know, it shows that exactly what you're saying, they're kind of up into the right success. But then the second slide is what it really looks like. And it's this incredibly jagged, squiggly line up and down with like heartbeats and death signs. And the reality is like, even if it didn't quite look like that, it feels like that to the founders. As a founder, I remember like every day I'd wake up and somebody would send an email or there'd be the morning, Dan Primax, ProRat or whatever. And there's some story of a new company that's founded that sounds like it's doing something similar and your heart drops. So you're like, wait, what? You know, like there's somebody's like coming after us like what do you mean and there's just so much emotion that goes into it as a founder and so i think that ability to kind of take a longer view and remember hey we're playing the long game here we're trying to build something that's really durable that's going to be a 10 plus year journey to take it where we want to go and there's going to be some challenges but keep the passion and the vision and just kind of keep rolling and try to just stay level-headed through the choppiness it's hard to do but it's that's the part that I think the best companies are able to, you know, keep as long as the vision is really compelling and big and there's progress, even if it's choppy, those seem to be the requisite things to keep people excited and fired up. You're headed in the right direction, then it's just grit and continue to put one foot in front of the other, <laughs> not giving up. I wanted to step back for a second and talk a little bit about you've been in the venture business for a very long period of time. And I imagine you've seen the space change. You've seen the relationship between investors and entrepreneurs change. You've seen, you know, the speed change, the size of the market change, maybe the size of the outcomes change. I just rattled off a whole bunch of things, but, you know, and those are all my words. But I'm curious for your take on the two to three things that have changed the most over the last 20 years. I mean, look, I think just the overall awareness of venture capital and entrepreneurship is just so much greater. There was no tech crunch when I started and all that stuff. Like there was no blogging. And so all of that stuff has just brought incredible awareness to entrepreneurship. Like obviously there's been amazing innovations like Y Combinator and people that can help entrepreneurs become more successful because they jumpstart them through, you know, a bunch of lessons Leo learned and stuff. So there's been some amazing innovations in the space. But I'd say one of the biggest things that's different now is that companies stay private much longer. And so, you know, the journey to build a business, it used to be a little bit in the early days, at least when I got involved in the business, there was a little bit of a sprint to get public as quickly as you could. And a lot of these companies were raising 30, $35 million when they were going public and they'd have a market cap of like $300 million or something like that. And, you know, that would be the beginning of their public life. And then they would flourish as a public company and raise a secondary and, you know, grow. All those rounds now happen as private rounds, right? I mean, the Both the venture funds like Graycroft and many of the other top funds, as well as the big institutional 
investors in the public markets realized, boy, there's a lot more alpha to gather and to kind of capture for our investors if we can stay investors in those companies as private companies longer, help them grow a lot faster through those adolescent years or kind of really almost teenage years at that point and take them public later when they're much bigger. And so as a result of that, a lot more capital is poured in. Funds like us have gotten bigger and raised growth funds. The big public hedge funds and even the investment firms like Fidelity have moved down and will now take big private positions prior to the public offerings. So that market's matured a lot and gotten bigger. But all of that to me means the most important thing for founders is that the investor relationship that you choose, right, especially early, but all along these private rounds, a lot of these people end up joining your board and play a massive role with you in the, whether they really are incredibly helpful or not into the future of the company, they're involved a lot with you along the way, time-wise, meetings, board meetings, all that stuff. And so it used to be maybe a two or three or four year journey from when most investors would get in until the successful ones went public. Now it can be 10 plus years for our best companies. And we want the duration, right? We want it to go long. And so that to me puts the onus on the investor and the entrepreneur to spend more time together understanding is that relationship really going to be a reciprocally good one on a human level besides just the terms of the deal and what have you. And I think that's a really underappreciated part of the business and one that I focus a lot on, at least on my side. I think you said it really well. They're going to color your experience and they're going to be just all over the place. They're obviously going to be kind of voting on things. They're going to be sharing ideas with you. And that can obviously be, I think, colored a lot by just who they are and their perception. I'm curious, you know, one other observation with that. So if the time that a company is private has gotten a lot longer, clearly that means as an investor, you're now, especially if you're an early investor and you've got a growth fund and you can kind of invest all the way, it seems like it takes an incredible amount of patience. And maybe that's part of that finding that right fit is entrepreneurs finding investors that are going to be patient and helpful parties. Talk a little bit about that, how that patience is just so important in the process. For us as Graycroft, the perfect scenario for us is we meet an amazing team, whether we knew them before or first time. We made them early and we're able to start investing as early as their seed round and continue to invest whether we lead the round or co-lead it or whatever, we're not, we don't have a huge, we're very flexible about how we approach that, but we want to play a significant role in the company and help them raise that round and then subsequently keep investing along the way and continue to either lead rounds or support rounds either with our early stage fund and then again with our growth fund. And so we want to try to be this, the perfect series. We invest in every single round of the company, whether we're leading it or not is, you know, less important to us, but we want to play a significant role. So that requires not only conviction, but patience. We want to help build a relationship with the company where we believe in their vision. We see them executing along the way and making progress against that vision that they're describing. And for us to be able to continue the event to help them either lead or support the round all the way. And we're playing the long game, right? We're looking 10 years out thinking, is this the category leading company that's building a business that's got the legs to be a public business and not all of them get that far. And sometimes they get snatched up kind of between here and then. That's the ideal scenario because that gives the founding team the big vision and the ability to continue to bring in amazing talent because great talent wants the big vision too. And they want, like you were saying at Square, you want to be in a company that's got a huge vision, right? And so those are the ones that we think are the most exciting and therefore require patience to not say, 
well, let's just take it public early because we can, you know, let's take it public when it's ready and when the management is ready and when the business has matured to a level where it's really predictable and repeatable and is going to be the durable winner. I would love to now move and talk a little bit about, certainly we're going to focus on the enterprise aspect, but I wanted to start off by just having you compare and contrast enterprise venture capital investing versus consumer investing. And, you know, we had a, when we talked before this, you had a really great point that if you're a consumer investor, you're much more kind of anticipating where the market is going. And if you're an enterprise investor, you're more focused on pain. Flesh that out a little bit more and talk about how those two things are so different. So at Graycroft, we're about half B2C, half B2B. As you mentioned, I spend most of my life on the B2B enterprise software side, but I obviously watch our consumer team who's very talented, has a great track record on this stuff. They think the consumer deals, of course, are more sexy, but uh, I beg to differ with that. But the thing that I find fascinating about watching how they analyze these deals is they really spend most of their time understanding trends, where the market's going, and anticipating what that means for consumer behavior. And really like you know a lot of the things that they're excited about and that they really believe in are things that are not necessarily intuitively obvious at the time and that takes some real conviction because i think all of us as investors have a habit of trying to assume that we're the consumer on consumer investments and that's a very dangerous habit to fall into or trap it's hard to not do but our consumer guys who are very good at this always remind us it's all the data you got to really understand the data and the trends and what's happening it's not would you actually do this as a consumer because we're hardly ever the target consumer for most of these companies occasionally occasionally we are but almost never and so on the b2b side it's a little bit different here to me b2b investing is all about pain it's pain identification, right? These big companies, you know, or they're small companies, right? Whoever the business buyer is, for them to go with a startup over the myriad of other choices they have of third-party vendors that are more established or trying to build something on their own internally for people that have resources to do that, the pain has to be so high for them to give a small unproven startup a chance. And so that's the number one thing we start by looking for is that serious pain. And then we look for major like macro trend currents. So like big mega trends like the movement towards the cloud or interoperability of data across an AI, you know, these big mega trends that are moving the markets in certain directions. And we, I kind of think of it as like a river. If you're kind of trying to get from point A to point B down a river, you really want to be paddling with the current, not against it. And so we start by looking at those big mega trends. So we kind of have a sense of the current and how fast it's rushing in the water. And then we look for pockets in those markets where the pain is really high. And then we try to find the best player. Ideally, it's a seed stage company. We can get in early and ride it all the way, but sometimes we're a bit late and we notice that the best player is actually a little bit for long. And then we'll try to jump in with our growth fund there. You know, So we take kind of a very sector-driven, kind of mapping-based approach of these different pain areas. And then we figure out what's the best player should we start a company back or very early stage company or should we find the best player who's in the very, they may already be reasonably big and the valuation might even be reasonably high, but they're not even through the first inning of a nine inning game and they're already the unquestioned leader and it's got massive running room, right? Like those, we love those too. So that's how we think about it. 
just to you know dive in a little bit more on the trend identification piece to me i'd be super curious to know how you think about that because even for myself i'm definitely trying to have a folder in my mind of these trends that i think are playing out and i piece those together from blogs from research papers i find online from interviews from books that come out that are i think kind of like hallmark pieces of where things are going what are your inputs into figuring out what those trends are we do the exact same thing. So we read a ton and we have, you know, both long form, blog form, articles. You know, we have tons of feeds that come in from different sources. I read you know, all of the major kind of deal memo, you know, Axios. We're an investor in Axios. We love that. But a bunch of the other ones and read in the morning, the digest and stuff. And we're just trying to synthesize through kind of what does all this stuff mean? The other thing, once you kind of become a bit more established as a fund in the industry, you know, we have a large portfolio. So we see across our portfolio what's working in certain companies. What are some that are, for whatever reason, have pointed into the wind a bit now just because the, their industry trends have shifted in their industries. So we're looking at kind of not only what's working with our companies that are really performing well, but some of the other ones that either haven't gotten through the early stage of the product market fit, or maybe some either industries that have shifted and a shock came and it's a little bit different than what we thought we invested. But we're triangulating all those different elements into where's the current going, right? The direction going. And now how do we kind of hook up our as many of our boats to that current as we can? And so that's probably an exercise that we step back and even internally probably every quarter or so we do like a kind of a refresh of all of our sector maps. And we're trying to, and it's interesting because even surprisingly, sometimes even like listening to our consumer guys and them going through their things actually gives us insight into some of the enterprise models that we're thinking about or whatever. And that just cross-functional disciplinary and, you know, kind of action of our firm is pretty helpful, but that's where the partners really, and the, and the associates, all of us together spend a fair amount of time really thinking through are we right on those trends? Because if you start there, it makes it a lot easier. It sounds super helpful, obviously, to have Graycroft be a firm that does both consumer and enterprise investing. A fundamental view I have is everything's connected. So I'm not at all surprised that you talk to the consumer guys and kind of see trends bubbling up that feel linked to the enterprise space. I would love to talk a little bit more about some of the focus areas that you have. And I know, you know, when we were talking before, you talked about revenue value chain, talent value chain, vertical SaaS, intelligent enterprise. Can you flesh those out? And I guess talk a little bit about how you got to those and maybe give a little bit of color on each of those, why they're interesting. The kind of macro trend we have inside enterprise software, we think of them as intelligent enterprise applications. So these applications are fundamentally cloud-based they have incredible interoperability. So they're mostly API first type of businesses, or at least are amazingly API accessible, both in their ability to allow people to connect to them, as well as their ability to pull data from other sources and to kind of have that be part of the, whether their workflows plus a data analysis around it. Those are kind of a number of the big trends. And of course, like, you know, with all that data comes AI and machine learning. And we look at that as kind of a necessary part of almost every app that we're investing in at this point, as opposed to necessarily its own thing. Although there are some that are kind of almost pure play AI businesses, we kind of feel like almost every business should have some AI component to it at this point, or at least the ability to do it at some point. Those are the attributes of what we think of as like intelligent enterprise applications. And we think enterprises in the future are now past wanting one monolithic piece of software like SAP to run everything. They're still probably going to use SAP for a lot of their stuff, but they're also now matching best of breed. I wouldn't really call them point providers because they're broader than that, but best of breed providers that bring a certain level of functionality to the table, but can still now integrate with the general ledger and the CRM system and the other kind of core systems of record. 
And so that's kind of how we think about it at, at a broad level. And then with underneath that, there's about four or five core themes that we're investing in. So the first one we think of is revenue value chain. That for us is efficient acquisition of customers and revenue, and then the ability to maintain that revenue over time, right? And so that could include everything from literally like a modern CRM system to analytics around sales efficiency, training reps better. Once you've landed customers, how do you do insightful analytics around your customers to make sure that you're not seeing problems developing before they develop, right? And then churn all the way through customer success, customer onboarding. How do you get customers indoctrinated onto the product successfully, even like training all those models. And post COVID, a lot of those models used to require, or at least were still partially deployed using real humans and in-person meetings. And now it's all gone into the cloud and online. So some of those systems we still think are completely getting rewritten for the next 10 years. And we kind of feel like every company, no matter what industry you're in, you have to be good at revenue acquisition and retention or you're going to be in trouble, right? And the ones that really are great at it spend a lot on this to try to maintain an advantage. And the ones that struggle end up, whether it's that current management team or the new one that comes in to replace them, has to spend a ton to try to catch up. So that's great opportunities for startups in that ecosystem. Yeah, it's like the ultimate compounding, where obviously that's something that literally has a massive direct impact on your bottom line. So yeah, if you get that right early on, it's just going to compound and compound. (laughs) And guys will spend, if you can show them that they can benefit from it, they will spend aggressively in that category. So that's the first one. The second one is talent value chain. So it's the exact same thing, but people right? It's the second massive arms race that's underway besides customer acquisition is talent acquisition. And we see this particularly in categories like software development, where there's millions of unfilled jobs in the U.S. alone of people they're trying to hire to fill these roles and they can't find them, right? And so again, from identifying what you need to being successful, hiring those people, to giving them a great experience joining, to onboard them, to career path them, to make sure they're happy in performance. How do you indoctrinate culture in a business now that's mostly remote or distributed? All of these things function around acquiring and retaining the best talent in the world. And Battle for Talent is global now, right? And again, same guys that are great at that, like Google, spend a fortune on it. Guys that aren't so great at it, have to then spend aggressively to try to catch up. And so we love that category too. We're investing in a bunch of areas there. We have a a similarly kind of modern supply chain, similar to the talent value chain. We look at the, or the revenue value chain. We look at this as really kind of your inputs value chain and you're building your products and sourcing and procuring. And these are all similar and that's all a networked business now and the cloud is making that a lot easier. So we're spending a lot of time in that category. And then we also look heavily in vertical SaaS. So different industries that are kind of rewriting their foundational software to kind of power and and accelerate an industry that probably has not historically had a lot of underlying software attached to it. So it sounds like when you say vertical SaaS, clearly that's industry specific. And part of what I think is so difficult with that, at least in my experience, is understanding when it actually makes sense for a company to be industry focused. And that may mean just the market is large enough, that the need is different enough from having a general purpose solution. How do you think about that in vetting whether this actually makes sense as a company and as a business, as a vertical play? These companies are, they can sometimes look TAM challenged because the industry looks small enough that you're like, okay, you know, does the plumbing business really need to be, have a better SaaS platform? You know, ServiceTight would argue that yes, it does, right? And when you first look at it, the TAM can be a bit deceiving 
on these companies. What's exciting about them is these software platforms, unlike the ones we were talking about before, that tend to be a bit more a functional solution to solve one certain thing. These can be like mind-body where it's powering the entire business from CRM through customer management all the way through payments. And so the percentage of revenue that you can get from a player in that industry, if you provide a soup to nuts all the way through enabling them to take payment and, you know, quote to cash, get, you know, receive their cash and it can be significantly higher. So the revenue models can get really interesting quickly. Most of these have like an embedded fintech component to them. That's a fascinating way to think about it too, is the total addressable market may seem small, but if you take a high enough percentage of that (laughs) because you're offering something, then obviously it gets, you know, really interesting and really lucrative pretty quickly. If you look at like Salesforce, right? I mean, I have no idea what their average percent of revenue that they get of a Fortune 500 customer, but it's minuscule, right? In terms of percentage. Now, the deal sizes can be tens of millions of dollars big, but it's still on a relative percentage of revenue. It's probably not even one basis point. Whereas a vertical SaaS provider can take probably five to 10% of total revenue. And that's a win for the customer because they're able to grow their business dramatically versus what they were with way fewer people and expand services that they offer their customers. And they're grateful to pay that big of a percentage of revenue to not have to hire extra bodies and do all that kind of stuff. So they're just different dynamics. I want to go back to something you said that stood out to me, which is you kind of made the comment that obviously people are no longer kind of adopting these one-size-fits-all, very large applications, and you mentioned SAP. And you know, then you talked about interoperability and APIs. And I'm curious how those two things connect in your mind. And part of that to me is a trend that I've seen is there are now, I notice this and I talk about it frequently with any of my friends that run companies, just the number of tools that companies now use has shot through the roof. And I mean, I don't know, just to throw out a rough number. I imagine if you were to go back 20 years in time, it'd maybe be five to 10 applications. And now literally it's 40, 50 across the company, maybe more than that. Is that why the interoperability is so important and being API forward is so important? I think in a modern enterprise, what businesses want to do is leverage the investments they've already made, but introduce new capabilities to attack pain spots that they've got that are are acute and that they have to solve. And they want to be able to do it with a specific short-term time to value in mind where it's not this like 18 months and hope that it works kind of type implementation. It's got to be C value in three months, six months at the most for, you know, and ideally it's faster than that. Right. And so that's kind of the mentality that most guys have. And so that's why I'm actually, I was joking about SAP before, but I'm actually super bullish on that company long-term even though I think their business is going to change pretty significantly from today. I think if they play their cards right, they could have a little bit of a Microsoft-like renaissance under Satya's tenure where they really become a cloud-first company. They manage their own applications and migrate those to the cloud, but then they leverage and work with an ecosystem that works around them where they can tap into these best-of-breed providers and they can work with even applications that customers have built themselves in their own clouds and kind of connect all those together. And it's, but it comes back to what you're saying. It's all API-driven. It's got to be that way. And when customers ask for it, it's almost too late already. Like, you should have already done it. To us, that's a fundamental view. And there's very few companies now that are system of records. I mean, a few of them are. But most of them are actually taking data from lots of different systems and then making better sense out of that, either through a workflow or through analytics. And that's where a lot of the unlock comes is is that 
ability to see stuff across different application sets and silos, obviously, with businesses. Just to build off that, you know, the systems of record piece is fascinating to me because we've seen a lot of really valuable companies in that space. But it seems like now maybe that is less interesting and maybe the, you know, take rate or the importance or the pain scale of that problem has gone down. And now it's more about making sense of the data. Is that kind of true? Do you have a sense of where that pain is now in terms of in the enterprise? If there were more system of record businesses to be had, we'd all be, and we we still do, right, chase after those when they do emerge. But they're hard. I mean, if you think about it, right, there's CRM, there's HR, sort of like Workday. So there's Salesforce, there's Workday. There's Zendesk and ServiceNow. And then there's obviously the general ledger players. And then there's an ERP system, right, like procurement and what have you. Those are kind of generally thought of as the five systems of record. We're pretty confident we have a company that's the sixth, which is ICERTIS for contracts for enterprises, which you know stores all the actual contract data, which we think is kind of a surprisingly untapped one still at this point in the market. I mean, it's now getting filled, but there will be others. But most of the other players, like look at like a player like Gong and the sales kind of analysis space, they're not a system of record per se in the sense that the customer records largely are still sitting in Salesforce or Microsoft CRM or whatever you know people are using. But that engine watches what reps are doing during calls and can understand and suggest improvements as to how to increase conversion rates and win rates. And it's an incredibly successful business growing very fast with a great valuation and certain to go up further from where they are. And that's not a system record business, but really is like a data analytics business around the CRM space. And so there's so many opportunities like that in different areas to, you know, even without being a system record, because the ability to get the data through these APIs now exists. You don't even have to necessarily be the system record player anymore to have an unfair advantage on that getting that data. So you brought it up. I'd love to go to it and talk about it. And that's Isertis. You know, as I was looking at the investments that you've made, you've made a ton of incredible investments. And, you know, there are a few of those that are super interesting, but Isertis seems super timely. And, you know, so I'd love to start by just teeing up what it is, because obviously at a high level, it's kind of described as contract intelligence. And just the one thing that stood out when we talked before is a quote I heard a couple of years ago, which is I've heard it said before, like, what is the ultimate settlement system? Meaning when push comes to shove and you've got two people that are disagreeing, what is that ultimate settlement system? And the best answer I've ever heard is that it's a legal system. It's baked into contracts. And so maybe expand off of that and, and give everyone a little bit of an overview of what iCertis is and the problem that it solves. The elevator pitch on it is iCertis, as you mentioned, is a contract intelligence platform that is a cloud-based system that enables you to author, sign, manage, analyze, and optimize all contracts in a company or an organization. It doesn't even have to be necessarily a company. It could be a nonprofit, whatever. And if you think about it, you step back for a second and think about it as a business, right? Even for consumer business, but really as an enterprise or a big organization, almost every revenue and expense item that you'll have that flows through your P&L or every asset and liability that you'll have as a company on your balance sheet is sitting in your contracts. Those contracts are what underpin how you recognize your revenue and when you're spending or buying things to buy for your products or to pay your employees or whatever. All those things are in contracts, right? And in most businesses today, those contracts are authored through Word document or something like that. They go back and forth between the lawyers. Ultimately, they're signed, whether they're signed electronically with DocuSign or something like that, or they're physically wet signatured. Once they're signed, they're PDF'd, and then they at best sit in like a file share 
at worst, they're in like a file cabinet. That underlying data is what is the underlying asset value of all those contracts and therefore your revenues, your costs, your assets, and your liabilities. And it's not accessible. It's not searchable. It's not understandable. It's not analyzable to improve your performance on them. And so what iCertis did was they created a system that enables businesses to author in and sign and close those contracts faster, but then to like manage and optimize them and to watch them and to make sure that your contracts are renewing right and that you can do better on your next negotiation because of these aspects. Like So all of that intelligence that comes from that is what's in their system. We just think it's an incredible opportunity because all businesses realize, especially even before the pandemic, once the pandemic hit, if I want to keep doing business, but all of a sudden my employees are distributed around the world and working at home and stuff, how do I still do approvals and get budget authority and sign off on significant contracts when people aren't together and the general counsel is not saying there? You know, there's, there's a whole system that they can instantiate through workflows that and security approvals and everything that enables that businesses to kind of make decisions faster, speed up time to procurement or time to realize cash from your customer contracts because these systems are in place. But the big unlock we think over time is all the data. It's a system records. They have all the data for their clients sitting in their system. And now they can start running analysis on why are the West Coast guys performing, having different clauses than the East Coast guys, or why when you're buying next year's car model and you're buying the same seatbelt manufacturer because the car model barely even changed, why are you renegotiating that entire contract again? It already exists. Like it's the same, you know, can't you use that as the starting template and save a bunch of time and energy and dollars? And we're super excited about the business, as you can tell from my voice. <laughs> what stands out to me is, especially when you talk about it in the context of something like DocuSign, which I love DocuSign. I feel like whenever I get a paper contract, I'm like, please, can I get, can I get a digital contract just to be able to sign it? Because it makes my kind of life easier. But it almost seems like a really flimsy, not very valuable solution when you think about something like Isertus that actually can handle all of that, but then store it. It seems like it delivers much more value. So I'd love to try to talk a little bit about some examples. And one that we talked about before was, I know Daimler or Mercedes-Benz is a big client of Isertis and saw some huge improvements by moving to that system. Talk a little bit about that so people kind of understand the business impact. Yeah, there's some pretty good videos. If you go on the iCertis website, you can see like the, I think it's the CTO from Daimler or CIO who talks about a bunch of this stuff. But at a high level, these numbers, this math may not be exactly right, but if you watch the video, that's probably more accurate. Conceptually, from when a car manufacturer looks at approving a new design of a car, to when it actually becomes available and the first one rolls off the factory, it usually takes about five years. And it's because it's such a complicated engineering and sourcing and procurement project to kind of put those millions of parts or whatever in a car to kind of together before it rolls off the floor. And that used to be okay when the competition set was pretty stagnant and was a handful of luxury automakers that Daimler and Mercedes you know, was competing against. But now, obviously, fast forward 10 years, and the as we all know, You've got Tesla and a bunch of new kind of electronic players that are in the market. And those guys, by the way, are creating their own electronic cars and introducing them. And then you've got Uber and alternatives to having your own car and probably an Apple car. Who knows what's coming, right? But it'll be exciting and certainly will be wildly different than it was five years ago. And so I think those large auto manufacturers just said, you know what, this is taking too long. We can't 
be strategic if it takes us that long to respond to the market from when we think we know what the, this back to our anticipating consumer demand. We thought we knew what it was five years ago. By the time the car comes out, it's something totally different. And so they said, we cannot compete this way anymore. We've got to shorten our cycle time. And they did an analysis and contracting was the simplest way for them to massively increase the speed took time to market, right? And so that can speed up your supply chain and that can do all kinds. You know, so that's why this stuff is so valuable. It's not just that it has the analysis and saves time, but it's the business value creation that comes from moving faster, responding more quickly, listening to your customers faster. And so that's why this has become kind of must-have software over the last five years, not just in that category, but in pharmaceuticals and banking and oil and gas, you name it, they're all facing similar pressures. Well, I can't wait for it to go public so the rest of us can get a chance to invest. <laughs> Who knows how many more years that could be. One thing I wanted to kind of transition and talk a little bit about, and sorry, just really quickly, go to outliers.fm and we'll link to that video and to the iCertus website. So if you're curious, you can go and find that. But one thing I'd love to transition to a little bit is, you know, part of why I was so excited for this conversation is, so I've done very little enterprise investing. I've done some enterprise investing, but very little enterprise investing in general on the private side. But if we think about on public market side, some of the most valuable companies especially over the last few years, have all been enterprise players. Think about a name like Snowflake, a company like Salesforce has had incredible runs, Slack. What are the most interesting public companies that are enterprise players that you think are either just interesting strategically, interesting in what they've been able to accomplish, and or are interesting because of the opportunity to just get huge over time? You know, you mentioned SAP, Salesforce, a bunch of others. I still love the system of record software businesses. So Salesforce, Workday, ServiceNow, Zendesk. I just feel like those businesses, once they get to scale, they tend to just keep going and they're so valuable. And then look, obviously we've been seeing some rotation out of tech stocks by the big pension funds and what have you, because people perceive that the market's heating up Inflation may be coming, tech stocks, all growth stories, and maybe that kind of hurts them a little bit. That's all true, and I think that's fine. But to me, that's a buying opportunity, especially for the system record software businesses, because the one thing that all these companies are going to be doing over the next five years when the market's theoretically going to be getting hot globally and all this potential inflation-driving activity that's going to be happening is they're all going to be investing in tech. And they're all going to be investing to kind of grow their businesses. And so those system of record businesses, while the multiples may be moving around a bit right now, the fundamentals on the buying side for those companies are amazing. That's where they're all going to be spending is that. So I look, I still love that category of guys. The second ones are the big data and data analytics players. So Snowflake is probably my favorite just because the story's really crisp and they've done an amazing job executing. But they have, what they really did is they brought a simple consumption-based model down for data, data warehousing and data analytics, which didn't exist before. It was complicated. You had to build a data, maintain it, and have some all that kind of stuff that was hard to do. They just kind of brought a really elegant solution for the fat part of the mid-market, and they're crushing it. And they have a great product. So I love that. I even, like Palantir is a different play, but it has a huge AI and big data play, a little bit more bespokey and less kind of pure software as Snowflake, but still I think is where the world's absolutely going. And then the last category, you know, I really love are these API-driven companies. So that would be like Stripe, Twilio. We talked about the importance of APIs before, but I think people that can embed in really important functionality as part of other people's products are just like awesome businesses. And then of course, we've all been living on Zoom and other you know, streaming collaborative communications platforms and those aren't going anywhere either. That's a big play. 
I don't think so either. I don't think that's going to revert super heavily once we all start going back to the office. (laughs) So we'll start kind of closing things out. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about that kind of loops back around to something you brought up early on is I want to talk about some of your fundamental beliefs and, you know, your advice for investors and entrepreneurs. And I know something that you're super, super passionate about, we've talked about a little bit, is just making sure, and this is specifically advice for entrepreneurs, but I'm sure part of this is for investors to hear as well too, that the relationship between entrepreneurs and investors, especially if you're investing early and you're going to be in the life of that company for a long time is super, super, super important. Talk a little bit about that and some of your beliefs around that and why you think that's such an important thing. I go back to my fundamental premise where this is the Graycroft view of how we approach the world is these great companies, you need to be prepared to be in them for at least 10 years and you want to be in them for 10 years. And so that's like a professional marriage, right? I mean, that's a decade long relationship. It's two and a half times longer than college or, you know, think about any sort of relative metric, any relationship with a spouse, partner, friend, whatever. It's all based on respect, open communication and enjoying being together. Which isn't talked about enough. (laughs) Yeah, and so that's so important. And so when we meet with entrepreneurs, we explain to them some of the core tenets of our investment philosophy, which is we're going to be incredibly flexible with you as an entrepreneur because what you go through over the next 10 years, while you have a plan and a set of projections that probably go out a couple of years or whatever, we have our own perspective on what we think your business is going to look like. None of us are going to be right. Even if it's wildly successful, it's probably not going to look anything like what we think we're investing in when we back it. And so that flexibility is crucial because what their business will need over time could be very different than we're anticipating, even as we form that relationship. And even if I have amazing chemistry with a founder and we're just so fired up to go for 10 years, what he needs may not be Mark at some point. Even if we think at the time it is, and we as Graycroft need to be open to providing that company with the very best that it can get. And we've had companies in our portfolio where certain of our partners end up having better expertise over time in an industry or whatever in a company. And we'll work with the company to kind of switch our own roles if that's better for the company, if that's what the company wants. We don't force them to do that. And so we want to be flexible. And so trying to think through the number of twists and turns that the relationship could take up front is really important. So we spend a lot of time in our courtship and dating process with entrepreneurs. And sometimes it's very fast, right? Because the deal is very hot. It's the time pressure is really high, but we still try to slow down and make sure that they're calling references on us. Obviously, we want to call references on them. We want to spend time understanding what's your company culture? How does that relate not only to your employees, to your customers, but to your board and to your investors, like ideally it's a consistent philosophy, right? But how do you think about that? And we want to bring on our side that flexibility, but also a commitment that, hey, we're going to go through some tricky and probably some hard decisions at some point, even if it's all good, right? And the company's generally winning, you know, there's still hard decisions to make. And we always want them to feel like you can be direct. We're always going to try to have empathy and compassion, but we're going to be direct with you, right? And give you our perspective. You don't always have to listen to it, but we're going to be honest with you. And we hope you'll do the same with us. And we hope over time that we'll be the first, if not the first, one of the first calls they'll make on the great news and the really tough stuff that's happening that they wish they didn't have to call somebody to talk to them about. And we want to be that call. And we want them to know that we're going to be honest and open and compassionate and listen to it. And that at the end of the day, we're going to put the company's interests 
in front of ours. And we hope that the founders, they'll do the same. They'll put the company's interest in front of even their own interest if that's what's best for the company in the long run. If both parties are willing to do that, it all ends up working out. That's a little bit hard to do because there's a lot of ego involved on both sides, but it really is cathartic when you build those relationships that have that underpinning of trust, like every good relationship you have has. Yeah. And to try to maybe draw out some of those things, to kind of reiterate them. So it sounds like a part of your process is clearly over-indexing on spending a lot of time up front with entrepreneurs, just getting on the same page, forming that relationship that's going to be the basis of you know, how you're going to work together over the next 10 years. Then it's about open but direct communication. It's about sharing of good news and bad news. Anything else to add to that list or is that kind of the big ones? It's a commitment to them. One of the things that comes up a lot of times in companies is that there's a, depending on big outcomes like an exit or a big fundraise or something, there's typically like a board vote and a shareholder vote. And they're different, right? On the board, you know, you everybody, including the investors, have a fiduciary responsibility to all of the shareholders, as do the founders or the CEO or whoever, you know, depending on the founders are still running the company at that time. They also have a fiduciary responsibility to everybody, both as operators of the business as well as directors. On the shareholder vote, you know, anybody can vote their shares in whatever interest they have. But the board vote to me is the important one because what we want to try to do is always think like, how do we make the pie the biggest? How do we help the company the most? How do we build the biggest, most enduring business and optimize it for the super long game? And most founders also are thinking the same way. And, they're, and, and they know because they've been hiring people all along and building an option pool and taking dilution to bring on other people. So they fundamentally understand the relationship. But when you kind of keep thinking, what's best for the company? What's best for the company, both for the investor and the founders? It just has kind of a magical moment where the culture of the business is around optimization of the pie. And I think that's where the best, best outcomes come. There's hardly ever a split vote on the board. It just doesn't happen very often, except for very corner casey kind of things. And that's generally because the founders build a culture, they execute, and they're open about the challenges and they build consensus kind of before any sort of like complicated vote comes up in the first place. And that's what everybody wants. I love that you talk about building the biggest, most enduring business possible, because that's not something that I hear a lot. I don't hear a lot of people using those words. And it seems like generally investors are trying to bias for more of a short term, bigger outcome as opposed to kind of a longer term enduring outcome. So I just wanted to say, you know, I think that that's an incredible. I'd love to ask you for your advice for both investors and for entrepreneurs, and maybe we'll start with entrepreneurs. So if you take off your investing hat, put back on that entrepreneur hat for people listening that are either maybe they founded a company and they're a year in, maybe they're in one of those challenging spots in a company's kind of trajectory, or maybe it's someone that's thinking about founding a business. What advice would you have based off your experience for entrepreneurs? Always be okay being honest, like, and not just in the obvious sense of honesty, but like being okay, being vulnerable, being okay saying when you don't know an answer, because nobody knows all the answers, especially in these businesses and being intellectually honest about what you know and don't know. It builds a lot of confidence with investors and even employees when you're open and you can say, look, we don't have the answer yet, right? Try your best to be direct and not give kind of bullshitty answers. You don't have to sugarcoat everything. It's fine when things aren't always amazing, right? Like they won't be always, right? And people sense it just 
just like we talked about early on, the middle management guys always knew the answer in those big enterprise companies at McKinsey. Employees, you're hiring these best people in the world to work at these startups. They're not dumb. They're extraordinarily intuitive. They know when there's challenges, right? And so it builds a lot of trust and empathy and a sense of cohesion if you kind of include them, right? So I see the best companies are really good at doing that. And then I would say surround yourself with amazing people, right? And people that have different skills and you don't want just yes people. Like you want people that will constructively challenge the status quo and push the business to be better. And that includes both as employees and on the board. And it's never too late to improve those things, right? Even if you feel like maybe you didn't get off to the start you wanted on those things, just like any relationship, you can always do a clarity walk and reset and declare that you're going to work on trying to get better. And then I would say the last thing is, we do this at Graycroft. We all have coaches. We know we're not perfect. We're all trying to be better individually and as a team. I'm seeing this more and more often now. A lot of our founders, not even just the CEOs, like the founding teams and the leaders across different departments are getting coaching now. And it's a lot more available and it's excellent. And I think it's really refreshing and it allows you to kind of have these moments of clarity and vulnerability and understand how you can improve yourself as a person, as an operator. It carries over in all your life too, beyond business, which is fantastic. If you think about the, the best athletes in the world are the heaviest coached athletes. And so whether it's Michaela Schifrin skiing or LeBron James or whatever, you know, those are the ones that get coached. Serena Williams, they get coached more than anybody. You know, if you want to be the top performing athlete in your cohort at YC or whatever too, why not look for the same thing? And so there's different ways to get coaching and I don't want to be preachy about it, but I think it is an enabler. And I think an area that even if it's once a month for a half hour, just to kind of check in, it can be kind of a very unlocking dynamic to push yourself to be better. It reminds me a little bit of going back to that kind of Goldman Sachs example and those most senior partners, you know, you don't just, no one shows up in the world polished and able to deal with challenges and having high EQ and being able to have difficult conversations. And these are really, really, really hard, soft skills. And one of my biggest gripes just with just the way we're all taught is we never get, you know, there's no instruction ever on soft skills. And yet when you kind of move into your career and move into life, most of the worst disagreements or worst outcomes come because of lack of soft skills. Yeah, just kind of incredible. <laughs> so it's totally, totally true. So to switch hats now and put on that investor hat, what advice would you have? And I'm sure some of it, you know, we've already talked about, which is understand the nature of what you're getting into if you're backing an entrepreneur in a business and try to ha- be empathetic for them. I'm sure some of it is getting on that same page early on. What other advice would you have for investors or would-be investors? I think the reality is we try to do a lot of our work upfront before we've even met the company in terms of understanding the sectors and having a point of view already. And then when we meet the company that's doing something in that area that we mapped out, we kind of have a feel how it fits. We've got a little bit of a running start. Ideally, not every company fits that, but we try to 80, hopefully 80% of them are kind of in that type of model. And then it's really about alignment, making sure that we have, we're hooking our wagon up to the exact same wagon that the management team and the founders are on. And that we're either together going to go to the moon or we're going to sink to the bottom of the ocean together. But there's not going to be a divergence of our interests from theirs, right? That's the most important. And then after that, joking aside, I mean, I feel like our role is really like a third trying to stimulate ideas around sales and marketing. And we don't really try to get too deeply into products. That's really a founder's vision and founder product market fit kind of stuff. But really around helping the 
to push on sales and marketing, provide them leads, opportunities, introductions, and like help them on that. And then the other third is probably a psychologist. The other third is probably, and this isn't necessarily booze related, but like a bartender. I mean, I feel like we're kind of in a situation where we're encouraging and trying to be a jetpack on super founders' backs. We're not making the decisions on the business. We'll always give them our honest take, but they don't have to listen to us. And oftentimes there's probably times when they're better when they didn't listen to us. But we're always coming from a point of what we believe with some logic and with honesty and, and with the company first when we're providing that feedback. And we're just one data point that they need to manage through along with the other people on the board. But it's really like trying to keep them, like I said, level-headed when things are going amazing and keeping them pumped up in a sense of, you know, source of energy when they're in one of those trickier times in the company's life and keeping them believing and going down the road. Because we all need a little bit of an energy boost at times. And I feel like that's really our primary role in those relationships. That's the juice for us. I mean, obviously we're money managers and we have to earn returns for our limited partners ultimately, but the day-to-day juice for us is seeing my phone light up when I'm driving somewhere in the car, well, at least pre-pandemic, and seeing one of my founders calling me and having no idea before I answer the phone if it's going to be amazing news or something really challenging for them. But like the sense of adrenaline kicks in and it's the closest thing you can get back to being a founder without being a founder, I think. That's the part that I love most about it. I think that's incredible. Great advice for both entrepreneurs and investors. You talked about just how, you know, that you read an incredible amount and you gave some examples there. I know Axios is one, Dan Primack, I'm sure you probably read his newsletter. So I'd love to know a little bit of what are your inputs in terms of the things that you read, the things that you take in that you find super valuable. And I'd love to frame it up in kind of two ways. One of those would be the small things that you read daily. Those could be newspapers, those could be blogs and newsletters. And then another would be just any longer reads that are either things that you give to entrepreneurs or to your team or to people that you work with and or things you've read recently, you're like, wow, that blew my mind. (laughs) The short form episodic stuff is a combination of most of those sources you talked about. Pro Rata, I read like the Forbes kind of morning letters. And then I go through like my set of stock tickers and see what's up and down. And I click into a bunch of those things. And then obviously we're a bit lucky because of all the different angles we have working at any one time at Graycroft. There's an incredible amount of email traffic and Slack traffic that's going back and forth that's about company updates or things that are happening or updates from our platform team, you know, that's talking about events we're having or whatever. And so there's always a high amount of intelligence you can glean from what's working in some of our companies and what's challenging or whatever. I think of that as like the bursty stuff that's kind of happening every day. One of the other investments that we are investors in a company called Blinkist. So I don't know if you know, but they do kind of summaries of books and audiobooks and listen to a ton of the summaries there, which is really efficient. So you can listen to like any business book or whatever, and you can distill it down into like a 10, 20 minute listen and get the kind of core of it. I do listen to a lot of podcasts, including sadly some about the Chicago Bears, which is a little bit painful. I listen to a lot of that, but then long form stuff. One of the things that I love are the like, I still read a lot of the classic kind of novels. Like just recently I went back and reread two of the books that I read right when I was leaving Stanford when I met my wife. My wife grew up in kind of Monterey County and she got me into Steinbeck. So I just went back and read East of Eden again, which was just amazing. And then Somerset Mom, The Razor's Edge. And they're just so fun to read. And my life, for the last time I read those 15, whatever, 20 years ago, yeah, I was just out of school. I wasn't married. I was dating my wife till now, you know, whatever, 18 years later with two kids. The way you read those books is so different now as a dad and as a husband for 
close to 20 years now, how I think about that stuff versus when I was younger. It's so crazy to think your own perspective changes how you read that. And I guess that's my takeaway from a lot of these books is what you take out of them often is your perspective. And it just helps to level set you back on all the other stuff and make sure you don't get so out of touch with general the world. My young daughters and my wife kind of keep me running around a lot, which is fantastic. So I, you know. Those are fantastic recommendations and we'll link to all those in the show notes. And just, I'm going to ask a different closing question this time than I typically ask. So sorry for the curveball, but you've been married for nearly 20 years. You've obviously got a family, you know, and it sounds like that's a huge area of focus for you. When I think about entrepreneurs and investors, both of those can be very demanding, very time intensive professions. And it can feel hard to balance family and these kind of passions. Any advice for someone who is married, someone who has kids that is in it as an entrepreneur and as an investor, just from your experience, any words of wisdom? (laughs) There are times when you obviously you have to give a lot to your profession, either you're in a hot deal that's getting chased or there's a moment or the companies, you know, one of our companies might be getting acquired and it's down to the, and you're grinding away and, you know, up late on board calls, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. Obviously as an entrepreneur, it's a nonstop weight that's on your shoulders. When things are going well, you constantly feel that. And so it can be very easy to almost single track yourself. And there are times you have to in any profession, but balance is really great for performance, for energy, for perspective. And you need all those to be a great founder and CEO. And I think a great investor. And when people are happy or at least balanced, they're way more fun to be around. They're much more interesting to talk to. We talked about the soft skills. You know, when when you're just getting to know entrepreneurs beyond, hey, this is my CAC to LTV ratio. You're getting into like, who are they and what drives them and why are they doing this? Like, what is it that made them go on this mission to kind of try to flip the odds and be that one guy that makes it to the end of the pool? And trying to relate to them, for me, I mean, that's what I love anyways about the business, but I really think hard about that stuff and I try to understand what's driving them and then how can I be supportive to them in that mission? And a lot of that comes from, being able to relate to them about their kids or, hey, you know what? I can tell you're really straight. You've got to take a break. And sometimes because we're not in the company every day, we have a bit more ability to see that kind of, you know, those moments. And while it's hard to do, it's just really important for everybody. I think the world's gotten better about understanding that over the last five or 10 years. And I think we have a ways to go still. COVID's kind of caused a little bit of a rethink and a reset of a bunch of these aspects, which is good. But it's just important to try to, maintain, you got to do some things for yourself during the journey to recharge. And you have to be a little bit selfish every once in a while for any of us. And that's okay. Making sure that you're putting emphasis on everything in your life is obviously going to be an overall performance boost. (laughs) It's like, so, so don't neglect that. That is fantastic advice. It's a perfect note to end the show on. Thank you so much, Mark. This has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much. If I can help in anything, let me know and love to do it again sometime. Thank you so much for listening to Outliers. To explore other episodes and sign up for our free weekly newsletter, visit outliers.fm. 